Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, the Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show, nearly 600 episodes and counting, are all available for free including conversations with writers like George Saunders, Cheryl Strayed, Celeste Ng, Tao Lin, Hilton Owls, Jonathan Franz and Susan Orlean, Hanya Yanagahara, Roxanne Gay. The list goes on. It's all available for free. You can listen online. You can listen via iTunes or whatever podcatcher you use. It's all free. It's a listener-supported show. If you like the podcast, you can support it at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Thanks. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Hello, everybody. Hey, how's it going? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm here in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. I hope you're doing well. Quick reminder here at the top of the proceedings, this show has an official website. It's otherppl.com. And if you want to follow the program on Twitter, the handle over there is at otherppl. So my guest today is Brett Easton Ellis. You might have heard of him. He's an author. He has several books out, including the novels Less Than Zero, published when he was just 21, The Rules of Attraction, uh, American Psycho, for which he was uh, famously or infamously dropped by his publisher. I believe it was Simon & Schuster. And then, of course, uh, you know, the book got picked up by another publisher. I think it was Knopf, and the rest is history. Other books include Glamorama and Lunar Park. That's not all. There's more. Uh, He's a screenwriter. And he's the host of the Brett Easton Ellis podcast. He has his own podcast. So he does a lot of things. And he has now published his first book-length work of nonfiction. It's a collection of essays called White, available from Knopf. It is a provocative book. It has been generating a big response, uh, at least on my Twitter feed. And I, uh, I reached out to him. I asked Brett if he would come over and talk to me. He said he would, and he did. And we had a wide-ranging conversation where we talked about the book, we talked about the response to the book, we talked about my feelings about the book, his feelings about the book, we talked about Trump, we talked about uh, his childhood, we talked about his early career, 
we got into it and he was game for all of it. So I'm very pleased to get a chance to share this conversation with you. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Brett Easton Ellis, and his new essay collection, once again, is called White. That's a word that I've heard a lot since I published this book, your first foray into nonfiction. <laughs> what is a foray? I, but you're in one right now. I guess I am. I don't know. It is my first foray into, non, into published nonfiction. Yes. But you've written profiles. You've written es- like the odd essay here and there yeah, over the years. I have. Um, what the experience, I mean, there's been a big reaction to this book, which I'm sure you're aware of. I am aware of it. Yes. Did you expect it? No. I did not expect it. I expected this to please my publisher and my agent who'd been after me for years to put together a collection of my nonfiction. And I wasn't that interested. And one of the reasons why I wasn't that interested is that when I looked at over all the nonfiction that I'd published uh, uh, since 85, uh, I didn't like any of it. Why? I don't think any of it was good. Well, I think the stuff that I wrote like in the 80s when I was uh, in college and uh, seemed really good at the time. I wrote a really long piece for Rolling Stone in 1985, 10,000 words they ran, about what it's like to be a college student at the height of the Reagan 80s. And I thought then that the piece was really good. But going back last year and reading that piece was excruciating, yeah. just absolutely excruciating. And you it, don't feel the same way about the fiction that you wrote in that era? Uh, to a degree. Yeah, I do. I do. But the fiction is out there. It's doing its business. Uh, I can't do anything about that. I would love to re-edit Lesson Zero. I would love to do some stuff to American Psycho. And it's hard for me to read those books without wanting to get a pen and go through them. That's normal. So I didn't want to make the same mistake with the nonfiction. And so I told my agent, uh, who told my publishers that Brett really isn't interested in this. And then my agent said, you know, what about those uh, monologues that you open your podcast with? I have a podcast called the Brett Easton Ellis podcast on Patreon. And I usually open each episode with a somewhat written monologue uh, about whatever. It it usually was about movies and television. uh, And then it drifted off into some cultural stuff once or twice dipped my toe into politics a mistake because you already are turning off half your audience it doesn't really matter what even if you're nonpartisan it is a it's a problem and I, it's just not fun to get the the good reactions or the bad reactions so I kind of stayed away from that but I did do it uh, a couple times um, and my agent said well why don't you put those together why do you use all of these uh, the, the, the past four years? Um, why do you take the best of those monologues and put them into a book? I didn't want to do that either. So I was out to dinner with a friend, uh, Matthew Spector, who uh, used been to been on this show. Yeah, who is a friend of mine way back from the '90s when he was, I guess he was an executive at Jersey Film, uh, working for De Niro down in Tribeca, and he called me in just on a random meeting to see if I had anything I wanted to do—a movie or was there a script I wanted to write. And I'm, so I've known him ever since. And we periodically have dinner here in Los Angeles. And I, we were, I was at one of those dinners with Matthew, just the two of us, um, sometime after the second martini or, you know, between courses. He said, what are you working on? And I said, um, Binky. That's my agent. Still your agent. Binky is still my agent. Yes. After 35 years. Wow. Um, you know, uh, Binky wants me to put together a collection of my podcast monologues. And he said, that's a great idea. Why don't you do that? I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, I think there are a lot of themes that you cover over and over in these podcasts. I can already think of five that I would want to anchor the book with. 
And I said, you're kidding me. And he said, no, I'll, I'll send you a file tonight and I'll tell you the ones that I really liked. And um, maybe uh, it'll spark something in you. And he did. And it did spark something in me. And I realized that there were about eight or nine, along with the other five pieces that I kind of could deal with and that they could be repurposed into this long form essay, which is really what white ultimately is cut into eight sections. And Matthew was pretty um, helpful to the degree that I dedicated uh, White to him. I don't think I would have really uh, come around to it if he hadn't uh, kind of been insistent and also very creative in terms of there's, there are certain stretches of that book that he helped, um, you know, outline to a degree. Like I, I would never have thought of starting off with my childhood. And then I thought maybe going back to my childhood at a certain point, but he saw it as uh, a narrative and he saw it as something that began uh, at a certain point for me and that I became this person and I began changing. And then I was something completely different and somewhat confused in the summer of 2018 where the book ends. And in a way, we, we both saw it as a progression of Gen X. We saw it as kind of, all right, well, we were raised in all of this kind of freedom in an adult world, not made for kids. And then you progressed through the 80s and into the 90s. You definitely had to move completely from the analog era into the digital era. And then you are ending up someplace in a world that says, well, you can't say this and you can't do this. And... Uh, you know, not, not that it's all, everything you want to say and do is racist or sexist or homophobic, but you want to act like an adult. And there does seem to be a massive strain of puritanism that's going on in the culture right now. And I think that is part of what I was writing about in white. I'm not a political person. I never saw this as a political book. And I think one of the reasons why there's so much controversy over it is that because people do read it as a political book, which it was not intended to be at all. I'm not political. I actually don't vote. So um, I'm in the massive majority of uh, this country that does not vote. So um, it's, it's, it's strange to have this book be uh, the most controversial book I've published since American Psycho. And I certainly didn't expect it to be as controversial with millennials, which it really is. You really didn't? Cause you take, Not at all. You take, you take shots at them. You know what? The thing is that all of this is – most of this book is stuff that I've already said and I've written about. Years ago, I wrote gener- I wrote an article for Vanity Fair called Generation Was Four Years Ago. And I d- didn't think that adding that piece, in, folding it into this section, uh, I think on liking or whatever it was, uh, was a big deal at all. And I saw the book as rather benign. My mistake, I admit. But it really, and I guess, you know, right now we're in such a polarized, I think, overreactive moment that I should have known better. But I expected this to just be something that fulfilled, that I happily did, and I enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, But it was something that in a way was a little bit repurposed. I mean, there was stuff that I'd already written. Most of it I'd already written. But there was a lot of rewriting involved and a lot of ways, um, a lot of um, finding how to connect to everything and having it read as, as this whole. But um, but even if you're slam and I, again, slamming seems to be a harsh word. I don't see that at all. And I see this book as fairly remote, fairly neutral and fairly chill in its approach to talking about everything. I don't see the millennial section of this book that has caused 
so much controversy and has angered so many millennials to be that bad, partly because I live with a millennial and I've lived with one for 10 years. And part of that, part of what I'm writing about stemmed from being in a relationship with him. And at the same time, everyone seems to conveniently forget the final paragraph of that section, which talks about how sympathetic I ultimately I ultimately am to this generation. Um, so again, it's like when I, some of the first reviews were by rather hysterical millennials who took me to task. And one of them, I think in book form, uh, went on and on and on about how old I am, how white I am, how out of touch I am, how irrelevant I am, how old I am, how white I am, how 3000 words with a giant picture of me which seemed to me to be exhibit A in exactly what I was talking about when I was writing White, this complete kind of almost borderline hysteric overreaction. And also I want to, when you overreact, you also misread and you also start, you lose your judgment and you start seeing things you want to see rather than what the author has intended you to see. And that is, has been a big problem with the reaction from the mainstream media to white. Well, I read they I read a lot of the reviews like prepping for this interview and it get provoked a really heated reaction. I also on the other side of the equation read a review that took to task the reviewers who had been uh most strongly negative by saying that the reviews themselves had become takedowns rather than critiques i mean there's been some variation in terms of the coverage like do you read the reviews of of your books mostly i mostly do and i mostly have read all the reviews for white uh there got to be a point where it became way too predictable and that what the reviews were harping on were uh the sections about uh my friend's reaction to the election of 2016 where it seemed that they uh, rewrote me as uh, this kind of, uh, you know, MAGA-wearing Trump supporter, which I'm not, but because I did not come out and I retained a kind of neutral response to a degree to the election, I was looked at as this kind of right-wing, alt-right dude. And that was what got a lot of critics going. Certainly the New Yorker approached it in that way when I did that interview with them. Um, but, um, but that's just, you know, but I also have to say, honestly, I have never been well-reviewed. I've never been well-reviewed. There were reviews for Lunar Park that were terrible. I think the Washington Post, the reviewer there called it the worst American novel, the worst novel ever written by an American. (laughs) And people tend to forget that Less Than Zero, um, was huge divide about that book. There were people who really thought it was cool and new, and there was an, a literary establishment that could not believe Simon & Schuster was publishing this junk. The Diary of a Drug Addict from L.A., are you serious? This is what it's come down to in publishing? And there was a lot of controversy over that book and the decision for Simon & Schuster to publish that. So why did it take off? Like, I don't know the, like, the history of, of its uh, trajectory. I know it didn't come right out of the gates as a big seller, right? No, not at all. It didn't. I mean, in fact, uh, as I said in the book, uh, there was, um, you know, I think Simon Schuster said they had done a first printing of 5,000 copies. I think it was probably closer to 2,500. I don't know if they would have spent, would have done 5,000 copies. Even then, I was excited. I was 21. I was very excited by that prospect of even having books in a bookstore. So I really didn't care. And I was still in college and I always thought there were other books to write. And this was just the first one. But um, what happened was that the media became very interested in the book and they, they, they took it as a kind of they, – they read a kind of documentary reality into it, even though I always saw it as a work of fiction, as a novel. 
But the media took it as a, a something, a news bulletin from the front. This is what kids are like today. And that sparked more and more interest. And then in the in the local media here in Los Angeles, and then it it kind of went national and people started to talk about the book and write about the book as if I was, you know, the voice of a generation and I knew exactly what was going on with kids today. Uh, this was a long ago era when it took about four to five months for a book to get on the New York Times bestseller list. And it took it took sometimes months for a book to leave warehouses and get to bookstores in certain territories in the country. I know that sounds unthinkable now, but that's kind of how it worked. I mean, there were there was a time where I think the book started moving westward or then maybe westward into the middle of the country. But there were there was like a month where no one had copies of that book. Unthinkable now. What about like, a, was there a moment or, a, you know, a specific like short window of time where you could feel it turning where you were like, this is becoming something and the attention started to intensify? Um. Well, there, there were, well, there, <laughs> there was, there was, I was suddenly invited uh, sometime during that summer to be on the Today Show. And I think that was the moment where the book really began to sell after I was on the Today Show for rather a long time um, for a 21 year old writer. I think Brian Gumble, if anyone remembers the Today Show when he was on, interviewed me for like seven or eight minutes. And that was, I think, the moment where uh, the book really took off. And then there was, um, yeah, that for me was the moment, even though I was completely hungover and had no idea what I was doing I was on that say, summer morning in 1985. Up, you have to get up at like three in the morning to be on the Today Show. Well, actually, no, you have to get up at six, but we were out partying all night and we didn't get back to the hotel till five. <laughs> so I was 21. You could do it then. You could actually, I think if, you, if anyone can find that clip, I am, I am rather, uh, I had, had no sleep and was pretty hungover. Like, we're actually still drunk. Were you visibly? I could, could no, no. I, 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 I maintained uh, some kind of semblance of sobriety. Well, I want to talk to you since we're here with uh, Lesson Zero in the beginning of your career, which started uh, really early. Most yes. people don't publish at 21. No. Most people can't write anything that's even close to worth publishing at 21. Right. So uh, the word prodigy gets thrown around whenever anybody has artistic success at an age like that, did you do an excessive amount of writing and reading or, or um, a particularly uh, like high level amount of writing and reading as a child that prepared you to be able to do that? Or do you think that it was a combination of talent and luck or all of the above? Well, of course. All. Well, you know, I think about luck a lot. But I think about it a lot less now when it pertains to Lesson Zero. Um, I've been reading since a very, very early age and a lot of adult books. My parents were voracious readers, as were a lot of people in the 60s and 70s because no one had phones yet. There wasn't a lot of entertainment offerings. There was Books were a big part of it. People read books all the time. Um, and they acted in a way like our phones. You got a lot of information from books, from novels. From novels. You got information about how other people live through novels. Now you can just go on the internet and find something out. But novels were often a way that people found out about stuff. I was reading novels at a very early age. I became obsessed with novels as a child and as an adolescence. And I was a voracious reader. I could read a book in a day, uh, sometimes two. Uh, that's what I, how I spent my time. And I started writing at a very early age because I loved books. So I began writing 
picture books, children's books when I was seven, six, seven, eight into my early adolescence where I began to design and write graphic novels. And so I was, and then I wrote, I attempted my first novel when I was 14. Um, and so that was always there. It was always there. And so when you get to Bennington College, when I was working on Less Than Zero, and I had a teacher there who was instrumental in getting it published, um, I'd done many drafts of Less Than Zero. I started working on it when I was about 15 and a half or 16. It was called the Less Than Zero Project, and it went through many, uh, many variations, many iterations. It was first, uh, the first iteration was very journalistic. I kind of um, just wrote about my life, uh, going to the beach, parties, going to the mall, and kind of fantasized about them as well. It, it made them seem darker, druggier, kind of more, I fictionalized them. And that was the, and I worked on this for about, and, and it, and it changed a lot, uh, until it, until the summer of 84, when I finally finished what is what you read was, is, is the published uh, version. Um, and so I don't know, I'm not, I didn't know anyone else who was doing that. It wasn't as if I suddenly won the lottery. I had a book. My teacher loved it. He showed it to editors who loved it. I got, I had agents fighting over to, you know, represent me. So it didn't, it wasn't like I had nothing and I just walked in with some scraps of paper. I was prepared. And there's an interesting piece about, um, Bennington in the early eighties in this month's Esquire. It's kind of an oral history. No, I read the, that. Oral history of the people who went there. And it was kind of, um, shocking because I'd done these interviews a long time ago and what they extract and what they pulled is can be somewhat embarrassing. But um, without putting it in the context of your overall interview, but it was a reminder of, um, you know, Donna Tart was there and Jonathan Lethem was there briefly. I was there, Jill Eisenstadt, David Lipsky. Um, there was uh, uh, there was an unusually uh, high amount of, I guess, quote unquote, gifted writers in this tiny college. You have to understand that Bennington isn't a university. It's a 600 student college. And it was a reminder that, yes, the best writers there were the ones that had written the most and had read the most. It was really as simple as that. And really, the best writer at Bennington turned out to be Donna Tart, who we all knew was the best writer because when she presented stories in workshop, it was so obviously apparent that she was so much more skilled than any of us were uh, that it was um, not only a pleasure, but also intimidating. Well, yeah, I mean, that's I guess that's the question I was trying to ask and and stumbled through a bit, but it, I always wonder, you know, does, did Donna Tart in her childhood, was she sitting there just reading book after book after yes. book and drafting bad story after bad story on her way to getting good when she was that young? Or is it some sort of innate gift? I, I guess that the answer is all of the above. I think the gift uh, is innate. The sensibility is innate, but you do, you do learn a tremendous amount from reading from reading novels and reading books. And I'm not saying that in some sort of dry academic way. Uh, I, I mean, like, just in the cadence of sentences and what works best for a certain kind of narrator, um, just you, you start to develop an instinctual response to fiction that can make the fiction actually more pleasurable to read, or it can also be a bit of a curse because it's very difficult for me now to read most fiction. I get too caught up in what the writer's trying to do. I realize all the tricks 
And it's very rare that I can give myself over to a book of fiction without becoming too self-conscious about reading it. And that's kind of a drag. Um, I don't finish about half of uh, the books, the novels that I start. And I wonder if I would if I didn't have uh, this history or all of this uh, knowledge about fiction writing. But I do believe that about Donna. And I do believe that about most writers, that your love for writing stems from your love of novels. And I know that's exactly where mine came from. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Well, I want, you know, and you talk about not being able to, to read through novels because you can kind of see the gears turning and you're you're deconstructing as you read. Uh, but I, I also wonder, because I have some of that too, I think it's very common. Well, it's also style. If if there's not a style, then I'm not interested. I mean, every story has been told, I think. Every character has been presented to some degree. But it's the style. If you have a style, you can sell anything. And if you have a commanding style, I'm there. And I'm pretty much there for the duration of your book, regardless if it goes off the rails or it loses the beat. I am um, – I'm a, I'm a style guy. You know, what about technology, though? Because – you know, I ask this because you're uh, an author who has a podcast, yep. um, which isn't common, like generationally, for right. somebody who's at the early um, early end of Generation X. Yeah, there aren't a ton of authors who have embraced podcasting. Right. there, um, you're good at Twitter. You know, you can get a res- you get a big following, you get a lot of response. Um, so you you have some stickiness there as well. Um, we're all online all the time. Do you think that you're like inability to finish most novels has anything to do with the fact that you're engaging with this technology like we all are? Has that had an impact on your brain? Probably. Definitely. Um, attention. The attention that I could give a novel uh, has been eradicated by, I would say, social media. Well, yeah, I guess by, uh, by being on uh, the Internet. Yeah, it certainly has. But I still have um, that yearning. And I, and, and, and it was bred into me. So I have not been able to fully let that go. I spend each morning reading fiction and nonfiction and I lock that part of the day off. Uh, I put my phone away. It, the phone is the first thing I look at when I get up. Uh, but I put that away and then I, uh, I can spend about an hour reading fiction. If the book's really good, I might push it to an hour and a half. Um, so that is a morning ritual seven days a week. And I love it. How long have you been doing it? Uh, since college, hmm. since college, I'd imagine though in college, I read a lot more 
And in my 30s, I read a lot more. And I think this particular ritual, I always read in the mornings, always read when I got up. But I think it, I also could read in the afternoons. I could also read in the evenings. I just can't do that anymore. Something messes with my mind after being on the Internet all day. And it's very hard to uh, get back to that, you know, just awake state and where you're very receptive to, I think, fiction in a way that you're just not at by the end of the day. I know a lot of people like to go to bed reading fiction and I've got a stack of novels. I mean, 40 of them on my nightstand. I've got a rather large nightstand and I'm, and I just, and I have a kind of system in terms of what I want to read next or what I'm going to read in the next month. And it's true. I can, if I, but if I pick up a book and stylistically it grabs me, I'm there easily. It's just finding that is a little harder and really developing that kind of style is I think key to a writer's uh, you know existence and keeping them going. Uh, a way of seeing the world that you're relating to the reader that no one else can do. Uh, that's why I think I get so so um, I don't know uh, uh, what's the word um, so annoyed by a lot of genre fiction that just is telling a story like a lot of mysteries. Just don't grab me because they're told in such a bare bones fashion. And I'm not interested in the information. I'm not interested in the information at all. I'm interested in how the information is being given to me. And that has pretty much always been the way I've read uh, to a certain degree. I think I think it was post-Hemingway and certainly post-Joan Didion, who I was a big fan of as a teenager, where I made that switch. Because I could read a lot of genre uh, sci-fi and horror when I was uh, younger, but then there were a couple writers that just made such a huge impression that you realize I'm I'm never going back. And did, uh, do you have a you know you said your parents both are voracious readers? Um, is there any like writer? Are there any writers preceding you in your family? Like people who worked in the business or were journalists or? Uh, no, uh, there was really no one. My grandmother on my mother's side did, however, publish two or three children's books in the 60s, in the 1960s. Uh, she didn't do the illustrations for them, but she just wrote the prose. Uh, but other than that, uh, no, there really wasn't. Though, at the same time, my father did write a couple of textbooks, real estate textbooks, because he was a real estate guy, and he was, and he was pretty successful. And he um, and that were used uh, uh, for classes, uh, real estate classes at um, various colleges. Um, but uh, no, no, there wasn't a lot of there were no other writers in and the family. Do you have siblings? I have two younger sisters. Yes, you do. Okay, so you were sort of like the oddball first child artist. I was. I was. Were and your I, parents supportive of it? Uh, my mother certainly was supportive of it. Uh, my father less so as I got older. And of course, you know, it's. Um, it's difficult. I mean, I was kind of out there in terms of my subject matter at 10 or 12. I want to see these children's books you wrote. When are you going to write a picture book for kids? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's somewhere in the, one of my mom's closets, I think, and I, I'm not sure. Um, I mean, but really, I mean, themes of prostitution, drug abuse in these children's books. There was a Christmas story that I told about like this angel that falls off the top of a Christmas tree and has got to get back up. And she just encounters a lot of evil ornaments on her way back up to the top of the tree anyway. And so um, I think it's I think when you know that your child is a bit of a weirdo, it's it's hard, I think, especially for men of my father's generation. I understand completely how he felt alienated from me to a certain degree. It, I was not the boy 
the all-American boy that he wanted and that he was raised as. And I understand now more clearly than ever at 55 how difficult it was for him to have a very artistic boy that he must have known was gay at a certain point, who was not interested in any of the things he was interested in, but instead wanted to write a novel when he was 13 or 14. And my father read that novel, and he was somewhat supportive, but he had checked out. And it wasn't, it was, uh, it was rough for me, uh, but it wasn't dramatic in terms of, you know, I didn't like start acting out or melt down or anything. It was just, oh, so I don't have a dad. Uh, woe is me to a degree. It's still being pretty well taken care of. But uh, I do think that missing that uh, paternal support. Were your parents divorced? They were, they separated when I was 18, oh. uh, 17, sometime late in high school. Um, and I, um, I don't know. I, uh, I only have recently, in the last 10 years or so, really began this path of forgiving him. Actually, it started way beyond that. It started with uh, completing Lunar Park, which is kind of a novel about my father. Uh, but um, so in the end, my father really wasn't uh, that um, interested because he was, I think, afraid for me. What is my kid going to do? He's going to go out there and think he's going to make a living as he really, really badly wanted me to go to business school at USC. And that was his plan. And he said, just do that, graduate, and then you can write all the novels you want. But I was headstrong and I, uh, I just, that was never going to happen. It was never going to happen. And so, uh, I took another path. Well, and then you, you know, it's, I mean, all of a sudden you're still in college, you're still an undergrad and you're publishing a novel with a major house. Like, how do you deliver that news? And what is his response to that? Uh, excited. He thought it was cool. Um, but it still wasn't enough money to live on. You know, it was great. Uh, you know, you're going to publish a book. Um, and, um, uh, but still, I mean, luckily I was in school because it wasn't enough money to live on. I think the, I, thought the advance, made, I thought it made you rich. Did it not make you a ton of money in the eighties? The I, advance? Well, look, look, I have different, um, I think notions about rich now. If I look back at that time compared to my friends, of course, of course it did. Um, but it just didn't seem like it, it would look, it was enough money that I could support myself, wouldn't have to get another job and could work on my next book. To me, that's rich and compared to what my other friends were doing. So completely grateful. But he also, um, you know, uh, he also thought that, okay, one time. That's going to happen again. Are you going to be able to do this the rest of your life uh, and make a living from it? And that was his main concern. And he was very worried about that. Um, and so in, in a sense, and then, you know, things had fallen apart by the time he died and we weren't speaking. And he was overall a very difficult person to deal with. And I say that soberly. I'm not going to get excited about it. He was <laughs> a very difficult person to deal with. And... Um, and, uh, but yet at the same time, I have to be on one level grateful because without him, I don't know if I would have been a writer. I, I think a lot of what made me want to write and want to read is to hide, is to get away from him, to get away his, from his influence in the house. And it was to, um, to, uh, express my pain and express my confusion at being alive as the kid of this kind of very angry, abusive, alcoholic person. 
I do not think I would be writing that that much or reading that much when I was a kid. I certainly would not have been writing books if I'd been probably the straight prom king or the or the quarterback. That wouldn't have. Uh, yeah, that, that guy that doesn't usually write novels. <laughs> well, I you know I no they don't, but they're usually uh, somewhat happier or more settled into the fabric of high school life than I was, and their future seems as bright as possible. Even though, of course, we all know that conversely, what can happen. But um, no, I think it's definitely being an outsider, being an outsider, having to look at the world from an outsider perspective, which is I'm an artist and I'm gay, really makes you see the world in a way that your peers don't. You have to re-see the world or you see it in a way that's hyper real and it's not shrouded in, you know, this meaningless etiquette or uh, these masks of propriety that we wear. When you step away from that and you see how everybody engages with each other and you are not a part of it, um, it's interesting. Did you, were you out in high school? Um, no, no, I wasn't though. I did have flings with other guys at the high school. I went to, I, you have to understand this was LA in the late seventies, early eighties. Um, and it was pretty sophisticated. And a lot of these kids were movie kids. Their parents were in the movie business. Um, they were pretty, uh, again, pretty sophisticated. So that happening, looking back, wasn't so surprising. Even happening then, it wasn't so surprising that you would hook up with another guy. It was all, of course, on the down low, as they say. And it wasn't something you look, you couldn't walk around holding hands. And there was no, you know, uh, special gay a uh, classroom for gay students, which I think probably every high school across the country has now, no matter where that where that is. Wait, do they? I think so. They have classrooms for gay kids. Uh, uh, classrooms meaning um, support groups, oh, right. uh, stuff like that. Right, not <laughs> gay. The gays have to go over there. No, no, gay no, no. math. No, right. <laughs> science. Well, there is gay math, but anyway, that's I live in West Hollywood, so I can say that. But um, it is uh, uh, no. So I wasn't out, but um. Uh, but it didn't really bother me. I, I wasn't that kind of adolescent. I really didn't care about my gayness. It didn't really mean anything to me. Well, I was more you, interested in writing. I wasn't so interested in, like, guys. Well, you're apolitical. I'm apolitical as well, yeah. You say that today. You don't give a shit about politics. And I think for a lot of um, young gay people who, in their coming out experience, or you know, sometimes they go up to college, and they do get politically activated. They do. They do become interested in, in social justice and causes and that never interested you no but you also could say that's because of my narrative and where i was really being in the heart of uh los angeles and the movie industry in the late 70s early 80s uh, my girlfriend i had a girlfriend and her father was a big movie producer there were it was who was that uh, a guy named john foreman who produced butch cassidy he was paul newman's producing partner and um, and he was gay, actually. He died of AIDS. Um, but it, that's that's the world. A lot of creative men in that world had married women and were gay. Whether it was Vanessa Redgrave, whether it was whoever, it was a, it was a thing. Dominic Dunn, and um, and so it didn't really matter in, in our circles. There was no gay bashing. I mean, there was no you know there. And and also, this was a moment in the culture when um, a certain kind of pansexuality or bisexuality was kind of everywhere I noticed, whether it was David Bowie, whether it was Prince, 
whether and I talk about it, the movie American Gigolo, uh, GQ magazine, certain photographers. There was a gayness in the air, air in the cultural era before AIDS, and it was. And I saw this when I first got to Bennington as well. Straight guys were not afraid to move over to another side for a while and, and experiment. Uh, that seemed to close, those doors seemed to close with AIDS. But um, no, so coming out was never part of my narrative. After um, high school, I go to uh, the deep woods of Vermont at, to a super liberal college. Like everyone was gay, more or less. Even the straight guys were gay. <laughs> Even the straight guys were gay, which See, is what made it so fun. I'm from Milwaukee and Indiana. Indiana especially was conservative where I grew up. And so your books were always like exotic, especially your depictions right. of Los Angeles, this childhood that you describe in Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, and it's rendered, uh, you know, it's not a, it's not a one for one. It's stylized. Uh, yeah. I'm imagining it wasn't exactly like that, no. but it's an impressionistic take on it. it. Um, it seemed like so unbelievable to me. That was kind of my imagination of Los Angeles. A lot of it right. was formed by those books. I think it's a common experience for kids in the middle of the country who have, you know, who grew up reading you, um, you know, to sort of form their um, conception of this place based on your take of it. Well, yeah. I mean, I hear, I hear it all the time. I hear, oh, yeah, I moved to L.A. because I read Lesson <laughs> Zero, which is crazy to me. But I guess there is, you know, look, the book strikes um, a certain balance between a kind of glamour and a kind of haunted, noirish quality that's very dark. Uh, but I still think that's attractive to people. Yeah. And there is something about that darkness that's sexy. And there's just even though I wrote the book in a res, in my response, uh, I guess in a response against L.A., I really wanted to get out. I really didn't like where um, people were ending up. I did feel to a degree that things were getting a little edgy in my crowd. And I just didn't want to be in L.A. anymore. And I think the book reflects that. And it reflects a kind of darkness, but also the stuff about the town that I was always attracted to. Um, I, I like the fact that I was a free teenager in a way, and that I had that mobility and that mobility aids in your freedom, the car, the sprawl of the city, all of the places you would go from the beach to the mountains in 40 minutes, downtown to dark and scary Venice. Um, I don't know. There was just something about that that I liked. And I liked, there was a haunted quality to the city that I responded to a lot. Um, I have a very different relationship with L.A. now than I did at 18 and 19. I mean, I rather love it now, and I can't imagine living anywhere else. When I was writing uh, Less Than Zero, I could only imagine New York, and I wanted to live back east. I wanted to go to college back east and go and live in New York. You wanted to get away. I wanted to get away from pretty much everything. Now, you have to understand, I did somewhat participate. I did have a girlfriend. I went to parties. We all went to the beach. I helped decorate the float. You know, the, I was, so I, was, say, I was part of the crew. So, okay. Yeah. Cause like, what would people who knew you then say Brett Easton Ellis was like in high school? Uh, quiet, introspective, um, probably a secretive, um, aloof, um, but funny. I mean, I think uh, that was it. And maybe, I mean, there there came a time when I realized that I did have certain affectations. 
And there were mannerisms that I began to really tamp down in terms of uh, being indicators of my gayness. And that's something I think a lot of gay men deal with that at a certain point. And so so I don't know if I came off necessarily as, you know, and I can say this, a flaming drama queen, you know, prancing through. Certainly not at all like that. Um, but um, but also I was, uh, you know, I, and I also have to reiterate this, that I was relatively okay. Wasn't depressed, wasn't desperately unhappy. I was okay. I was interested in things. I was interested in the world. And I never saw writing as a lonely exercise. I saw it as a solitary one, but one that I embraced. I really liked being alone with my writing. And it was never a pain. It never has been a pain. It's always something that's thoroughly interesting and that I'm engaged with. I don't understand that notion of the panic the writer feels when he looks at the blank page or the blank computer screen. It's just, what does that mean? I mean, jump into it. It's fun. It should be fun. Right. I can't imagine writing something under duress. Are you, are you generative? Have you always been like, I mean, can you get like a thousands and thousands of words in a, in a shot? Is no. that normal? Or you no, just... that's a problem. And that's a problem. And I really regret the fact that I wasn't a faster writer for a couple of reasons. I mean, I did spend, well, I mean, three years on American Psycho. It seems not, doesn't seem, that's a big book and there's a lot of research and uh, it, technically it was a difficult book to put together, especially on a, doing three drafts on a typewriter have a computer then. Um, so that seems reasonable. But I did spend about eight years on Glamorama, which was a book that I was obsessed with and in which I was positive was going to make this giant uh, impact into the world. And then it didn't at all. And But just fine. I still loved writing that book. But it just shows you that writers are notoriously, notoriously wrong about what they think their best books are. But um, I, I wished I had taken uh, a little less time with that book. Seven years filling around with Lunar Park, not being able to false start after false start. Um, and that's too bad. I wish that had been more compressed. Also, I wish that it had been more compressed because I wanted to make films and I wanted to get into movies. And instead, I worked on novels for about uh, 30 years. What about drugs? I mean, your books are uh, obviously deal a lot in drugs and you're pretty open about uh, having done a lot of drugs in your day. But I think people might have like a popular idea of you as constantly drug addled, especially back in the day. Like, was that, was that a part of your life? Like, did you have a problem with drugs and like, did it affect your ability to get work done? Well, I guess not because I never went to rehab. Uh, I never saw myself as an addict. Drug taking for me was pretty controlled because I had other things I wanted to do. Yeah, you know, doing coke was fun, but writing was more fun and more lasting in a way. Um, and so, you know, look, I've been around coke since high school, uh, maybe not to the degree that I found in Manhattan in the late 80s and throughout the <laughs> 90s. But it, it, it was always something that I kind of knew how to use. Oh, OK, well, this is going to keep me up this long or maybe for these many days. But I do have to get this done and I do want to write this chapter. So that's really how it worked. I mean, if I had weekends where I partied, uh, I made sure that everything shut down at midnight on Sunday or whatever. And then we would begin to go through the outline on Monday and then I'd hopefully have many pages written by the end of the week. 
that's just how I operated. And then after a little while, um, you know, uh, drugs aren't interesting anymore and you kind of age out of it. I never, I never thought I'd stop using drugs, but there really comes a point where it's like, I don't like this anymore. And so I just, I, I kind of drifted away from drugs and really the only drugs that I was interested in was Coke. Cocaine was something that I thought was a social drug, though I did find myself using it alone a lot and enjoying that. That, those, evenings made me a little bit nervous because uh the the social aspect of cocaine was you know it was communal it was a communal thing you'd have people over you'd have a big bar set out you'd be talking all night and you'd be were you doing it in the bathroom were you doing it out like because i always i always didn't like when people would go hide and do cocaine i always liked it when someone was just like out in the open i was like okay this is more honest rarely did i like to do coke in bathrooms in public places and rarely did i like to do coke in public places uh usually it was at someone's house usually my place in uh new york uh, which was just like one kind of somewhat large room. It was like a studio. And people would just come over there and would kind of roam around freely. And there would be, you know, people would have brought their own drugs or there'd be drugs there. It, and it was, you know, a relatively, I like, I never really knew anybody who got so fucked up on them that, uh, you know, there were other ways to get fucked up and there were other things going on that might derail you. But, I don't know. The Coke thing, looking back, was pretty um, kind of standard, kind of innocent. You know, white wine and some cocaine on a Saturday night, and then boom, people have to people have jobs and people have things they've got to get back to. And then when people started having families, everyone was began to drift off, and uh, it was actually time by that time to come back to Los Angeles. Yeah. So what prompted it? You just had enough in New York. Well, what really prompted it was my partner of seven years suddenly out of the blue died of an aortic, aortic aneurysm. It's on his way to his studio. And it was, you know, it was kind of traumatic to have that happen, you know. So we've been together about seven years and, um, and I found myself, I found myself in LA when I first heard about it because it was over the holidays. And I just locked myself in a room. Again, I don't want to be too dramatic about this. And I just kind of didn't come out or deal with anybody. And then I was here in L.A. And then I spent that year really finishing up Lunar Park and really motivated by Mike's death. Because it's a book about death and it's a book about losing a son and it's a book about losing a partner, losing your father. And it really became this incredibly emotional exercise uh, that I didn't expect. I thought it was going to be much more. I thought I dealt with the emotional part of the book when I had completed the outline. And for me, that is a very emotional thing. And then kind of the cool, uh, neutral artist comes in and starts to deal with that outline and, and starts to. Um, you know, write it out. And you outline all your books? Outline every book, yeah. Um, and uh, and so that, so it was in L.A. And I realized that when I went back to New York, there were just a lot of ghosts, a lot of ghosts that I didn't even expect. I mean, crazy, <laughs> like movie shit, like walking down a street and you see uh, the bookstore that you used to buy, whatever. And it just was like, it turned into this like very dreary, you know, drama about a widow be a widower someplace and it just and i just had to get out and it was time to and la had been calling out to me again and i really had fallen in love with the city in a way that i never had expected to and i and i had fallen out of love with new york 
Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it makes some sense. You, you, you know, you're 18, 19, you want to get away, go form your own identity, have some adventures. You do that for, you know, what, 20, how long were you in New York? Uh, I was there from about 80, God, 19, uh, 20 years. Yeah. Uh, 20 years. Yeah. And then you come back. LA's a, and L, you know, LA is a different city by then. It is a it, very different city by then. Uh, but as I've heard from, well, I've heard from plenty of friends. Maybe it's not LA, maybe it's California. I mean, I, I've had friends flee Los Angeles. And well, you know, I had a lot of friends uh, who fled Los Angeles because they didn't want to raise their children here. I went to Ojai. I don't know why Ojai is any different, but I guess it is. Um, but and I and I have friends who are uh, who can't afford to raise their children here. That was really surprising. Portland, Nashville. I you know I don't have kids, so I don't know how expensive, yeah, how overwhelmingly expensive. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. But I have friends who I thought were okay and were okay, but cannot afford to raise kids here. How did we get off onto that? I don't know, but I, I'm interested in your friends because you talk about these parties in New York and, you know, just your time there. And I think, uh, like reading profiles and interviews over the years and reading your work, uh, I think a lot of us are just imagining you with other writers at like fancy literary parties. And, but you, like, who are your friends? Who are your friends in New York? Are you hanging with other artists, or are you just hanging with people who are like real estate agents? And uh, no, hanging out with people in the publishing world because the publishing world was central to Manhattan at that time. Uh, book publishing was a very glamorous in- industry. Novels were still glamorous. Writers were still glamorous, um, and there were a lot of money was spent on not only on books but on parties, on promotion, and so. Really, the years centered around that, uh, and most of my friends were writers or editors or worked at magazines, and uh, that was – or maybe worked in advertising. That was really what most of my friends uh, did, and with the uh, a couple friends also working uh, out here in TV and who lived – actually lived uh, in New York. But um, that was it. It was a full-on – publishing circle and yeah there were uh and looking back now i mean i don't know how much i was aware then that this was um a quote-unquote glamorous world but i think to a degree you did when you were living in new york in the 80s you realized you were like on a movie set that this was crazy probably not going to happen again and um it is i i I remember 1987 more distinctly than any other year. And I'm kind of talking pre-crash, but the crash really didn't affect Manhattan. It seemed to kind of ramp up the decadence. And 87, 88, 89 were the years that American Psycho actually took place and that I was writing it. Were, it was a stage. And it was everyone was, seemed to be performing. Everyone seemed to be dressed up in these ridiculous suits. I write about this in the book. I don't know any men who didn't wear suits at all in the day, uh, during the day. Even in publishing? Even writers? Oh, everybody wore suits. All the writers I knew wore suits. But we were all going out at night. So going out at night meant... I mean, you know, uh, that you wore a suit, whether you went to a club, uh, a nightclub, uh, wherever. And it was um, it's so it's so and it seemed kind of like everything seemed very manufactured and kind of stagey. And you were kind of hyper aware that this was an era that was, as I think, um, uh, defined as uh, the jazz era or as. The swinging 60s of London. I mean, it was it really had a 
uh, a particular feel and um, I don't know, something that was unlike any other period that I've lived through since. And I, I'm not sure that's just my age. Well, yeah. I mean, it's like, uh, I mean, it's part of it is youth. Sometimes, you know, you've, you're most impressionable then you're out a lot. You're kind of, um, you're in it. Like I, I, at this stage of my life, like I go out much more infrequently and, uh, at the same time, you know, the, the economic boom of the eighties was a real thing. Yeah. That much money flowing through the system and on an Island with that many people on it, it had to have been nuts. Well, so was 97 and 98. I mean, that was really nuts. I mean, that was American Psycho and steroids. I mean, with the tech thing happening, that was and crazy. That was- Even though it was, not, it was not real, I mean, but it was still, uh, people pretended it was. And I remember the decadence being ramped up even more during 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 that era. In New York. In New York, oh. yeah. And But I also think, you know, I... Look, as we talked about earlier about aging out of stuff, uh, you're about 11 years younger than me. I was just at the age that you are that I began noticing that I wasn't going to cocktail parties and that I wasn't going to parties, that I was begging off on screenings and that I would rather stay in at night with my partner and, I don't know, watch a movie, watch a TV show, a good TV show, open a bottle of wine, and that is... It's the spot. Um, now, of course, I have friends that I like seeing and socializing with, and we usually go out to dinner. And it, but it usually ha- needs to be one on one or two on two or whatever. Um, but I, you know, for someone who was so social for so many years, and certainly I was incredibly social in New York, and I think I threw very elaborate big parties um, in that loft. Um, How many square feet is this loft? You know what? It's a thousand square feet with incredibly high ceilings. And what makes it, I still own it, uh, I run it out, uh, the only smart investment I've ever made is that it has a 200, uh, no, 400 square foot balcony that juts off oh. from the, the loft from the studio itself. Um, so the studio, it sounds, it, it looks, if you can imagine this, it looks much bigger than it actually is. Right. Those high ceilings. High ceilings. And everything's in it. The kitchen, it's all open space. It was all open space. Um, but I i thought, I mean, I tried doing that here when I moved to L.A., throwing the same kind of party when I first moved here, throwing a big Fourth of July party or even a Christmas cocktail party or whatever. It just felt different. I was older. I was not as social. I liked fewer people. It happens. <laughs> you got to winnow down your list a little bit. <laughs> Um, so I want to talk to you about, um, you know, the new book again. Um, I feel like people are projecting the word nihilism onto you. Like that's been a, a word that I've read in a lot of the reviews that, that like, he's a nihilist. He doesn't care. You're apolitical. You're bringing up these like hot button issues. You don't care about, um, Donald Trump in the ways that you should. Um, you're not offended by a lot of the things that he's done. I think like if, you know, in my own read of it, um, I feel like some of the things you were saying about the authoritarian or fascistic impulses of the left are very worthy of conversation. I don't hear enough about that. Um, And I think it's foolish to assume that it can only happen on the right. Um, I think that people who care about um, freedom of expression and who care about... um, freedom in general should be wary of like those kinds of impulses wherever they lie. 
But where I parted ways is like, I'm one of these people, like I see Trump as an existential threat. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Brett, and, but you know, but for, for somebody who, who really doesn't engage with politics much, I can imagine how you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't have as strong of a reaction. I think if you dig into it, you'd probably recoil in horror. Is that fair? I live with a Trump-hating millennial communist. <laughs> you don't think I hear about how awful Trump is 24-7? And it's not I con- heard about an hour this morning. Is it convincing to you? Uh, no, not particularly. It isn't convincing. I'm an absurdist. I am basically an absurdist. I create a Patrick Bateman. I see the world in a certain way. I see uh, societies, corporations, companies as basically absurd, this absurd place we just have to get through and we try to make the best of it until we lay our head down and make our peace with the world and, and we're gone. I don't take a lot of it seriously as an ironist and as a satirist. That's always been the way that I've viewed the world. And I don't know if it's because I learned about looking at the world this way by being gay and realizing I was an outsider. I was separate from it all. And also just realizing, I mean, you realize as a child that you're gay. It's absurd. It's sort of absurd. You say, oh my God. So I'm attracted to Alex and Randy. Oh my God. This is another thing I have to deal with. This is all absurd. Um, and you do. And so I, it's hard for me to take the things so seriously that everyone takes so seriously. I've never been political. I might have, you know, even American Psycho is really not a critique of the Reagan 80s. It's more a critique of yuppie shallowness, materialism. That's always going to be there. It's just dressed up in in uh, new costumes. But um, for some reason, uh, and the, the other thing is that I, I think, okay, the trauma of Trump occurred. Okay, the plan is now to get rid of him. And that's what you're going to do. But he did. And I don't want to get into political debate about this. I don't <laughs> want to get into it. As I told my uh, distraught boyfriend, um, I, after about a year of having TDS, I told him to ignore Trump because it's making you very unhappy. Uh, go out and volunteer, work for the homeless, do something, but do not watch MSNBC 24-7 and have a meltdown every night and burst into my office screaming about the awful shit Trump did today. I understand, but it's been a year. I don't care. Is there anything that would activate you? Is the kid, you ever thought about that? Like, is there a line, you know, that he could cross where you would be like, okay, that's it. I'm getting in the ring and I'm going to actually engage with this stuff. Um, he was elected. He somehow won, but yeah, they, they, he cheated. He had help from Russia in the Mueller report. It's fact, (laughs) (laughs) but he's still there. Yeah, he's there. He's still there. He's there. And I think the plan is to, uh, I think, vote him out. It's to vote him out in 2020 and to get someone to replace him. And that's how it works here, more or less. Assuming it's a free and fair election. Assuming he doesn't cheat again. That's true. I don't know. Because there's just been so many (sighs) gross offenses. Um you know, I could point, and you've you've heard all the the song and dance from uh, you know everything I would say you've Todd. heard before. Oh yes, and much more with much more uh, vitriol and much more uh, passion. Yeah, well, yeah I'm, I'm trying. To, I'm trying to tamp it down, but yeah. just like kids at the border is one example, and I'll just leave, I'll use that no, only okay. example. Like that doesn't raise your ire. You're not like fuck that guy. I got to do something about this. They just ripped a four month old kid out of his parents' arms at the airport, like. 
as a human being, I'm like trying to process this. Like I've got to have a response. I feel like a sense of moral obligation to, mm. to at least, uh, tweet about it i mean it's hard to know what to do but right. i feel something do you not feel anything does it not does it not upset you a lot of things upset me the world is upsetting if you start to break it down and really look at it how unfair it is uh how terribly unfair it is uh i think about that a lot i think about whatever the the privilege that i've enjoyed um how do i process that or do i process that is this just the way of the world i mean uh i often think of how uh we like to pretend that we're all equal but we're not really the world doesn't allow for that i'm talking about everything from wealth to beauty to intelligence to innate goodness innate badness um so i don't know i see the world that way and i see the world as full of um, pain and full of terrors. Um, And I don't know. I mean, to a degree, to pick and choose which ones are more outrageous to me on some level or will help me lose my day, I'm not that kind of person. And I don't think you're going to get that reaction out of me. And I know you're using very specific things like the border issue, but it's... um, you know, I don't know. The question becomes, and I'm not going to ask it because I don't want to get into a debate. <laughs> Is it really that worse than Obama's? The border stuff. The border stuff. Yes, it is. Okay. And I will take that, take you as your word, and I will be fine with that. Yeah. I will believe you. I believe you. I yeah. believe you. Well, I just, I think the problem get, happens and I can feel it kind of, it always starts rising in a way. There's nowhere to go after Trump. There's nowhere to go. Once it's introduced at a dinner table, once it's introduced uh, to two friends who are talking about a movie outside of a theater, once it's introduced into an interview, it's very hard to dispel it. It's very hard to move on. I mean, I'm okay with moving on, but I have a feeling that there is a little bit of ire here and you are kind of like looking at me, maybe thinking, I really like this guy, but I don't understand him at all. Well, no, that, I mean, I, I do. And I, I think though, he, this is the, this is where I think maybe I am different than a lot of people who believe Trump is an existential threat and really want him gone ASAP mm-hmm. is that I can tolerate somebody who has different viewpoints without getting supercharged or mm-hmm. angry. Like I actually like having conversations with people who don't see things the same way that I do. Yeah. I enjoyed your book. Yeah. Um, it challenged me. There were a lot of moments where I was like nodding my head. There were a lot of moments where I was like, what? Mm-hmm. And I enjoy that experience. Right. Like I don't, I don't want necessarily one, or the other, um, I don't want a book where I'm always nodding my head, and I don't want a book right. where I'm always shaking my head. Of course. So um, I appreciate it. Uh, I do think that having some sort of dialogue around it, and you created one by writing the book, mm-hmm. um, is very necessary, especially for people who, um, I don't know, who might be tuned out to maybe catch wind of it, or I don't know, wherever you get it, to have have some engagement with this, I think is important. Well, what about my friends? And again, I'm talking about this from over here. What about my friends and my acquaintances who love him and want him back and will do anything to keep him in the White House in 2020? I know a lot of those people. 
I know a lot of people who loathe him. What's, so their, certain, what's their rationale? Do I don't know? know what their rationale is. I don't know. But I do know uh, a, a lot of people in my family, uh, my everyone from my trainer, the guy who cuts my hair, three of my best friends from high school, my mom, my stepdad. I mean, there's a lot of people I know. And a lot more came out that I had no idea about when this book was published. People, acquaintances from 10, year, 10 years ago, five years ago. The question is, because your question is completely valid, what do you do with these people? And I think there are a lot more of them than the other side can imagine. And it's very interesting what's going on in the news now. We're repeating a narrative that happened in 2016 about 10 points ahead of Trump, 15 points ahead of Trump. We'll never win. We'll never. Texas is going to flip. And I think we're at a dangerous place of overreacting to Trump instead of figuring out a way how to find the best candidate to get rid of him. I don't know where I know this Russia stuff drove a lot of people crazy. It drove my boyfriend fucking nuts. It drove me crazy. But I, <laughs> I want to hang out with your boyfriend. I don't know where it landed. <laughs> I don't know where it landed. What did it resolve or what did it clarify in terms of getting him out of here somehow? So I don't know. I, all I'm saying here is that I am. Again, I know you don't like hearing that I don't care the way. I've got no skin in the game for Trump. I'm not going to vote for him. And I hope my boyfriend gets happier. Do you so. want him to lose? Uh, I, d- I guess it depends on who, who he's up against. Do I want him to lose to uh, Gillibrand? I don't think so. I mean, I don't want her anywhere near the White House. But Why? Um, I just... Well, just... Look, there is, despite... I always say that taking Trump literally is the worst thing you can do. Your, your, your head's going to explode. If you take him literally and you call out every lie and you circle every tweet and say it's not true, because first of all, he doesn't care. And that's not how he operates. That's not the style. The style is bluster. The style is bluffing. The style is hyperbole. And if you don't get that and, and, and humor, a lot of humor is in Trump. I think Trump's actually very funny. I think he's a very kind of remarkable stand-up comedian. And even if you hate him, I think you would have to find that there are there. Is, but maybe not. If he's an existential threat, then he's not funny at all. I think he's. I, what I would agree with is that I think he is uh, like an excellent performance artist, con man. He's a fair rem- enough. He's yeah. a remarkable fair con enough. man. I don't know if Trump is capable of humor. Like I don't see him laughing. You know, he can't like handle, like he can't hang out with a dog. Like he doesn't like children. I mean, not that you have to like all these things, but like <clears throat> there's just kind of like this void to me when it comes to humor. Maybe he's got some sort of like, <clears throat> maybe he's laughing on the inside, but have you ever seen him laugh? <laughs> Good point. Yeah. I mean, it's like, Good it's point. a weird, it's a weird kind of vacuum. And I think <clears throat> that he's been doing his performance of this super successful billionaire and powerful guy for so many years now that it's second nature and he definitely knows how to fuck with the media like he is a master of manipulating the media cycle a terrible problem that the media allowed and the the media still allows i think it's really interesting that we live in california and i just read a poll from uh last week in the la times that among california voters among california voters the congress is less popular than trump the legislature is less popular than Trump, and the media is less popular than Trump. That's California voters. What does that say? Where are we then? What is the what is the alternative if this is where we're polling in fucking California? You know, it's all a mess. It's a mess. I think we need a government that's more responsive to ordinary people 
And if people feel like the politicians aren't listening, I think that's part of what caused Trump's rise is the fact that we had this great recession and all these people were in pain and their pain and their needs were not properly addressed or, you know, thoroughly enough addressed by leadership that he became a kind of conduit for their rage and he tapped into it and they said, well, burn it down. Fuck it. You know, I think there was a lot of that. I don't think that explains all of it, but I think there was a lot of that. I think there was a lot of racial animus that he, um, enabled. I think there are a lot of people out there who had previously felt like they had to sort of keep it under their hat and he, you know, made them feel justified in vocalizing it and vocalize some of it himself. I mean, he knows how to manipulate people and not always in the best ways to say the least. Um, so I'll be interested to see what happens. I think he needs to be removed ASAP, but uh, you know, the way things are going, I, I gotta say, I'm not holding my breath. Like they need to get on it. No comment. <laughs> I was interested in how Trump was being covered and my friend's reactions to Trump more than anything that I had going with Trump or that I was connected with Trump. I feel, and I read about this in the book, I feel like I kind of got over my Trump problems when I wrote American Psycho and when I met all these guys who worked on Wall Street in 86 and 87 who uh, looked up to Trump, who thought he was what they should aspire to be. And I thought that was odd then. And I read The Art of the Deal and I looked into his relationship with Roy Cohn and I looked into Fred's racial animus in terms of dealing with the apartment buildings and all that stuff. And I thought, what a strange person for these guys to look up to. And that's why I incorporated Donald Trump, I think, about 40, 45 times. He's mentioned in American Psycho as this lost father to Patrick Bateman, this kind of man that Patrick Bateman aspires to be, to the point where Patrick Bateman finds himself drawn to the Trump Tower uh, near the end of the book, just staring up at it as it glows in the (laughs) darkening afternoon sky. And I, uh, I, for some reason, maybe that process and, and really reading a lot about Trump, because I always wanted to make jokes in the book about Trump says this about pizza and Patrick Bateman then parrots it to his friends. If Trump likes it, then it's good. Um, and I kind of like, I don't know, I got maybe I OD'd on finding him somewhat buffoonish. And then I also, well, I, I, I mean, I don't know how many, how anybody really thought that, that day in June of 2015 when he was coming down the escalator was really going to amount to what it ultimately did amount to. I'm not even sure if Trump did. And I, you know, there is this theory that that was all, well, it's not a theory. I mean, the, the, the extras there were paid for the Trump organization did pay for that. And, you know, I think people think that it was Trump was doing this as a publicity stunt to get more money from NBC because Gwen Stefani was now the highest paid, uh, reality performer on NBC and then Trump was doing all this stuff. And I guess they'd rented out three arenas. Michael Moore talks about this a lot. Not that you should totally trust everything Michael Moore says, but he, he delineates this in a, in his last movie, Fahrenheit, uh, 11, nine, uh, and talks about how after that appearance on TV that day in June of 2015, where he said, you know, Mexicans are rapists and on so forth and so that um, these three arenas that they had rented out and thought they'd only use a section of and then put a tent over the rest and have Trent deliver the speeches, they all sold out. Yeah, he tapped into that, that anger. They all sold out. And it was kind of a realization of that's where we are. That's where we are right now. Are we still there? 
Are we still there? You know, I've been wrong before. I thought like, you know, remember when Obama talked about how like the, the Republican fever was going to break after the 2012 election. Right. It didn't break. It went up. Yeah, I know. And so it's like, what, like I'm at the point where I'm like, where's the bottom? I don't know if there's a bottom. Like when are people going to come back to some semblance of sanity? Like, I feel like there's a nihilism in the GOP right now that is not being properly countered by the Democrats. That would be my read. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's just off the rails and I feel like it's, uh, it's not about governing. It's about ruling. It's anything for power. The fact that he's the president, um, they've sort of fallen into line. There's really nothing he can do or say where they won't go along with it. Um, for, for the most part, almost entirely, except for what Justin Amash or whoever this guy is from the freedom caucus yeah. who, who defected. But who are, who are you interested in? Who do, who would you like to see Elizabeth run against Warren. them and, <clears throat> and a, a possibility in, uh, in beating them? Yeah. I think if she wins the nomination, I think she'll, I think she'll beat him. I think she knows how to fight. Um, and I guess like what moves me about her candidacy and it's really still early is the fact that she came out with so many substantive plans and has been unabashed in sharing them and has been clear on the impeachment issue, which is important to me because I think it's, uh, it's, if it's not merited for him, then who, they should just get rid of impeachment. Uh, but I feel like I guess my sense of her is that she's willing to lose, which is appealing to me in any politician. Of course. Yes. Like she's like, this is what I believe in. I'm going to show you in detail exactly what I would do, how I would pay for it. This is what I stand for. And this is how I'm going to run my campaign. And it, it says to me that she really thought about why she would want to be the most powerful person in the world. It's kind of an absurd thing to do yes, and to conceive of yourself as sociopathic even it's crazy. You know, it's like, what's the old adage? It's like, you know, we should, the only person who should be president is somebody who has no interest in it at all. Right. (laughs) Like anybody who wants to be president is almost like automatically disqualified. But, um, she strikes me in the grand scheme as pretty decent. And, um, I don't know. I just sense a fundamental seriousness in her and toughness. And I think that she wouldn't triangulate and say these things and then get into office and shrink back or negotiate with herself. I think she would fight for what she believes in and I'm ready for it. And there's never been in our lifetime with the exception, maybe of Jimmy Carter, um, a truly progressive president. We've had centrist left. Yeah. We've had you know, Reagan with the conservative revolution. Then we had like a New England centrist Republican and George H.W. Mm-hmm. We've had the Christian conservative with George, uh, you know, W. Mm-hmm. Bush. Then we had Obama, who's a little bit more progressive, but still centrist left. Yeah. Now we have Trump, who is like, who knows what he even is? I don't think he even knows, you know, I don't either, but he's whatever he needs to be to consolidate power on the Republican side. So he's pretty right wing. And then what I want to see is like, let's try a progressive. Yeah. Let's see how it goes. Like maybe it won't work, but then at least we'll know. I just haven't seen it yet. Who should she run with? Uh, Kamala or vice versa. Interesting. I think all the energy in the party, especially in the, like the primary electorate is with women and with people of color. Yeah. And I would be very surprised to see a race where Biden like runs away with it. Yeah. I think that's the way things are pulling now, but I think that's mostly based on name recognition. Yeah. Um, so we'll see, but like, yeah. I'm also living in LA. Yeah. I'm bubbled here. Yeah. I grew up in the Midwest. So I know, like I grew up in, uh, of course. red state America. Oh, yes. So I, it's not like I have no context for it. Um, and my parents are from the South. 
Right. So I'm related to all sorts of people who are on the Trump wagon. Yeah. Um, though I've never had any, you know, explicit conversations about it with them probably wisely. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so it's complicated, you know, and people, when it comes to politics, it's complicated, but I feel like we're at, uh, uh yeah, I think we're at a dangerous point and we need to sort of pull ourselves back and hopefully we will. But, um, you know, I don't see any, I don't have any sense of certainty or guarantee about it, you know? No. Um, so I think maybe one of the, like the broad critiques that I, uh, found in reading about your book and like the reaction to it is that a lot of people, I think big picture wise took umbrage at the fact that you seemed more offended by like the woke left and social justice warriors and victim culture or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. you want to call it. You seem more offended mm -hmm. by that than you do by the overreaches and authoritarian impulses of Trump. Is that true? Do you sense that in yourself? Does that animate you more? Or do you think that's a, a misrepresentation of, of how you feel? I think overreaction uh, among the people that I knew and felt that I was pretty much a part of my whole life was a shocking thing, a truly shocking thing, maybe more shocking to me than the rise of Trump. And I really, and I really do believe that there is Trump derangement syndrome. And I do believe that a lot of people have lost their judgment do about a lot it? of things. Do you think I have it? Uh, I, there was a look in your eye about five <laughs> minutes ago that kind of like very familiar, like oh, I was started uh, doing my, my, my kegels. Um, but I think that, um, and, and in the moment that the book was being put together and, uh, and much of that had been written in 2017 and I talked about it on my podcast, um, it was a, it was deeply disturbing because it was so close to me, I guess. And I knew, uh, I knew it had happened to a lot of very smart people whose intelligence, I guess I didn't think was going to be that affected by the narrative of things, the narrative of Trump. Also, it seems shocking to me because I guess I don't live in the Los Angeles bubble. And I do know a fair amount of people who like Trump quietly, small business owners, a couple gay guys. I know a lot of gay guys who like Trump, and it's, it's and it's what and it's interesting. Why you know it was sort of interesting. Well, why them? And then why did these people? Is one right? Is one wrong? You talk about Trump's authoritarian impulses and all that. And then I know people who just don't feel that way. Now, if I was writing this book during uh, the birther movement and the start of the Tea Party, it would be a very different book. It would be about that any kind of hysteria, mass hysteria that's going on. Um, and any, and also the other thing that interested me and that connected this moment back to my other work was the indignities that the, um, that the entitled feel is happening to them. And that goes back to lesson zero. It goes back to American psycho. It goes back to all the rich young kids in glamorama that there's somehow this put upon force in terms of their freedom, their wealth that I don't know uh, strikes me as somewhat hypocritical, somewhat not hypocritical. Maybe that's the wrong word, but again, an overreaction toward the news. This is the news and this is what happened. And you can be sad about it for a while or you can regroup and then do something about it. I was profiled by the New York times, interesting young journalist who came to my place 
for the profile. And we talked for a long time and we talked about this exactly. And she was saying, well, of course I voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. And it was a shock that night. It was a big shock. But um, she said, after a couple of weeks, I had a life and I had things to do and I didn't let it get so colored by this notion of what I find reprehensible is in the White House. And everything that you said, I believe that you believe and I know my boyfriend believes in it as well. You're right. Do I, I, you know, sometimes I wonder, do I wish I cared more? I'm much, much happier than my boyfriend, a lot happier. He's, this drives him nuts, makes him miserable. It causes stress and tension throughout the day. He can't see his face on a monitor. He can't see it on a TV screen. Only within the context, even if it's in the context of MSNBC, I'll still hear him mutter from the living room, you piece <laughs> of shit. Shut the fuck up, you fucking liar. So this is that's where I live. And, I, and I've been living with this, and I'm going to continue living with this. So I, of course, I hope someone else gets into the White House. We don't have four more years. But that might be... That might sound like a very simplistic, uh, decadent, decadent reason in a way. You should cover. I'm, you should cover the 2020 campaign. You should get into uh, it. I'd be so not good at it. I don't think. I'd be. I'm so bad at policy. I'm so bad at like following that stuff. And I, and my boyfriend lays out everything for me. So when I go, what is that about? Then he'll sit down and he'll go, and then I'll have to say, okay, I got it. Enough. Maybe he. Maybe we could do it as a team. Well, I'm maybe just, the millennial and uh, I could do it as a team—a series of reports on uh, the, the election. I have to say, I—I I don't know. I mean, I am so turned off to politics. I am so not there. I really don't like anybody in the Democrats that are running for the Democrats. Maybe, maybe Andrew Yang. Maybe you're conservative. Well, that would be interesting if I was, because I certainly didn't come up that way. And I certainly didn't feel that way in my 20s and my 30s and into my 40s. I think there's just something about the Trump narrative that trips everybody up, that someone has got everyone seemingly has to take a side. We've been engulfed by this person. And I am shocked to see that happening. I'm shocked to see this book being uh as controversial as anything, as I said before, written about American Psycho. But I'm also shocked to a degree that it has been number one in essays and number one in popular culture and number one in politics on and off for almost two months now on Amazon on certain charts. And I thought, really? On politics and essays? And and I see the reviews on it. There are a lot of five-star reviews. There is another country there that's different from yours and my boyfriend and perhaps mine. And I, you know, I think this is so funny. I kind of put this book together as something to, uh, at, at first to appease my agent and my publisher. And then it did become something that I was committed to. And it was a literary thing and it got me interested in wanting to write fiction again. But, um, it was, there is what, what disturbs me about the left is that they don't believe that there's another world out there. And I see that with my boyfriend. He's constantly shocked, constantly shocked that there's another opinion that is not his. And I find it also somewhat upsetting that, you know, they do these polls where it says something like 88% of all Republicans would reach out to someone on the other side and have them over for dinner, where it's like 12% of liberals or Democrats would do the same to a Republican. There is this divide and there is this kind of like total overwhelming rejection that is of other people, other people's values and stuff that I have found. 
I don't know, a little bothersome. I mean, I sound so sentimental when I talk about this, if everyone could just come together. And actually, you know, I, friends well, of mine, I have a couple of millennial friends. I know they're rare who are Trump supporters and they're pro-Israel and they're Jewish. And Todd met one of them. And Todd is Jewish, super left. Uh, he's a Bernie guy. Um, and we were at a dinner that someone invited us to. So six of us. We knew one guy, and he brought two other guys. And Todd and this guy looked exactly alike. We never met him before. And he was the comp- 32, the complete opposite of Todd. And they started to get into it. You know, Todd has a lot of issues with Israel. This guy is radically pro-Benny, um, the whole thing. And uh, Todd loathes Trump. This guy was a full-on Trump dude. And somehow by the end of the dinner, they had found common ground. And we now often go out with him and his girlfriend. The four of us go to the arc light. We'll go to a movie. We'll catch dinner or something. And as long as maybe that doesn't come up, everything's okay. And if it does come up between them, they're able to have uh, a semblance of a conversation. Todd likes him more than that. Right. And my friend likes Todd more than that. And I wish there was a lot more of that, that I am completely going to uh, find the humanity of someone in just that part of them. But I think that's easier for one side than another. It might be. I don't know. I I think there's a lot of validity in the criticism and you could apply it either way. I I haven't seen the polls, so I don't know who's more likely to have a dinner guest, but I'll take you, you know, your word on it. But um, in assessing the left, like, you know, there are virulent racist Trump supporters like who are in the KKK and yeah. who are filled with hate. Like they're to me, they're lost. Like I'm not going to try right. to engage that person. Right. But I know, um, familiarly with my relatives in the South whom I love dearly, yeah. you know, that, uh, it's worth a conversation. And I think that if you want to win somebody to your side in any kind of debate, uh, especially a political debate, you know, there has to be care and attention taken to how you language things and, yep. you know, just browbeating somebody. Um, and I, and trust me, I, I, I have that impulse. It's so, when of you course believe, everyone does when you believe something so strongly yep. and you're so deeply offended by somebody, you want right. to like grab somebody and say, listen, no, but you know, you, there's gotta be a process where you try to win them to your side. And I wish I were an expert at that. I don't know exactly how to do it. And I know a lot of people on the left who are just like, I give up. I can't talk to these people anymore. I think what you're saying, there's, there's a lot of that out there where people have just stopped talking. And I think, uh, where it's possible to find, um, you know, some common ground and a bridge and hopefully bring people back from the brink of Trump insanity, <laughs> um, or bring people back from the brink fr- of, uh, like a left-wing authoritarian impulse where it's like, you're either with me and hundred percent or you're my enemy. Right. You know, which I think you got to be honest about that. There is some of that. You see it on social media. Um, You see it in the way, um, you know, that people sort of tribalize and take people down. I think a lot of people have that experience of going on social media and feeling uh, scared. Like, oh, God, I better like if I say one wrong thing, um, you know, I could ruin my life. And (laughs) there there are certain (laughs) things that merit Somebody mm-hmm. having really, you know, you, I'm not saying you can say anything, but we live in an environment now where 
um, people don't give a quarter. And if, you know, you have a slip up or you're misunderstood, it can get ugly really quickly and people, you know, get taken down. And sometimes I say, well, you know, they sort of made their bed and they have to sleep in it. Other times I say, well, wait, like I start, I start to see things more gray and I go, well, wait, there's gotta be some nuance here. Like, you know, the person fucked up or they were, you know, they didn't mean to be as, uh, as blunt or offensive as they came off or, you know, I, I find myself wanting to understand and figure out a way to reconcile, you know, and I don't think there's necessarily, uh, enough of that sometimes on the left. What do you think about Harvard rescinding that, um, acceptance to that Parkland shooting survivor? I think it's all right. I think that sometimes, uh, you, I mean, the, the things that he said, I think a university has a right to say, you know what? Our incoming freshmen can't be doing that kind of stuff. Less like you're out, you know, go, go somewhere else. He'll have to learn that lesson. Mm. I'm okay with it. Um, but I also don't think as long as he in good faith wants to make amends and be, you know, learn from it and move on and be better. I don't think he should be villainized for the rest of his life or something he said when he was 16 years old. Uh, I look back at some of the dumb, the dumb shit that I did and said in my youth, uh, not just as a teenager, but just as a young man. Like I'm, I was raised Catholic, so I feel guilty about everything. Mm -hmm. And I like, I can look back, I can still blush and feel bad about dumb things I said or did in my youth. And, um, I think if we're all being honest, uh, we all probably to greater and lesser extents have things like that. And we need to be forgiving of ourselves and one another provided um, lessons are learned and people are acknowledging of their mistakes and want to move on and learn from them and not repeat them. That seems sane to me, but you know, there is also like, you talk about kids being coddled, uh, too much, or, you know, um, everybody gets a participation trophy, not accepting that the world is a tough place and shit happens. Well, you know, this is a lesson for him. You can't use the N word and fuck up and be using it in a private forum. And then once it's exposed, apologize. And, you know, it's a tough lesson, but I think it's merited. I like, I can't, I can't look at it and say it shouldn't have happened. Like, how, how do you feel about it? I don't know. 16, I, the same way that you do in terms of, um, I think, the, I think the problem is, is that this cancellation occurred. Someone else got canceled. The kid got canceled in a way. And we're just not having uh, the conversation that we should be having instead of just canceling the kid and making this. Uh, I mean, I think one of the most teachable moments that we could have had as a nation, I'm going to say as a nation, was when Roseanne Barr got her show taken away from her because of that tweet. And that there was a moment where ABC, who canceled the show, or the corporation that owns ABC canceled the show, said, okay, look it, we're going to talk about this. We're going to do like a live hour long show, prime time, Roseanne Barr, Valerie Jarrett wants to come on cast of the Connors. Uh, and we'll have people about race and we'll have a conversation about how this all occurred and all this happened. Now that might be his own loony utopia, but something along those lines, I think, I don't think, I think cancel culture is something both the left and the right despise. I don't think it's, I, I think it's, it's not a partisan thing. I think everybody 
basically hates political correctness and where it's ended up. I think basically both sides hate cancel culture. I think basically both sides uh, are tired of the weaponization of certain movements. And I think that it's not left or right anymore. What I'm confused about is, well, then how is it being kept in play? Is it the media? Does the media really have that much power when you see how it's so mistrusted? I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a, social media a, has a lot to do with cancel culture. Yeah. It's like, you know, mob uh, people. And I like I, I, I've confessed to this before. Like I virtue signal sometimes on Twitter or I sometimes will just stop and be like, why am I retweeting this and not this? And like, why am I faving this? And like, you know, sometimes there's genuine virtue in, in uh, amplifying a voice or a message or a story. But it does incite that. And, and sometimes I don't want to retweet something because I'm afraid it, you know, the humor will be, be misapprehended and I'll be viewed. What a terrible way to live. I know. This is a terrible way to live. The fact that but, we can't be. I mean, the differences between Twitter in 2009 and now are shocking. Shocking. It was a really fun place. And now it's this completely toxic environment that is, I guess, a reflection of who we are. Yeah. What we want. What we want. Our desires. I mean, it's like everybody's little like first first dash private thoughts have been externalized. And I read something somewhere where it's like, you know, once you see all this, like the way people think and you've gotten their like impulsive reactions to things, all that stuff used to be subsurface. And now we've seen it from one another. And so I think once you've seen that, it destabilizes things to a certain degree. And, you know, like it's complicated for me as I try to think through it, because I do think that it's, it's a tough way to live where I'm, you're constantly like self-censoring and like worried and virtue signaling and checking Twitter and like getting that dopamine hit from the likes. It's like, it, it can't be healthy. Right. Uh, but I also believe, uh, just to use it as, as an example, uh, comedy where I feel most permissive, uh, if I feel like, like maximally permissive of, um, subversive thought and expression, it's especially in comedy where we need people to sort of cross of that course. line. We need people to poke. And when I see people like bashing comedians, I'm almost always like most sympathetic with the comedian. Cause I'm like, well, we need people to test these lines. Like they, of that's course. the court jester, but you know, you can't tell certain kinds of jokes. Like in 1985, you couldn't tell the same kinds of, you know, things had evolved. So you couldn't do certain things on stage that you could in 1965. And in 2005, things had changed too. Things change and evolve for good reason sometimes. And comedians and artists change with the times and the way that we express ourselves um, changes in accordance with social change. And it's not all bad. So I, I guess I'm just saying that it's kind of a blend and it's a mix and you have to sort of navigate it. And it feels complicated to me sometimes. It's not just like everything's permitted and it's certainly not like everything needs to be policed. I can't live that way. I can't live by, by the rules you just decided. So I'm going to, and I've been canceled many times. I got epically canceled with American Psycho, but I cannot rein in my artistic impulses and change the brushes and the paints that I want to work with. I can't do it. I cannot, I will not self-censor myself. I mean, I'm not going to go out and kill anybody, but I do assume that people are adults. Often what's funny about jokes is that they do demean people. They do marginalize people. That's why they're funny. And I do think that I I have an epic problem, not only with comedians being, you know, canceled and being told they can't say that or their jokes um, 
are or, or, or watching Judd Apatow virtue signal in a quote about or in an interview about how we all have to watch ourselves now and we all and it's a good thing that we're doing that. Um, I don't think that's a good thing. I think that is an example of the the coddlification, the coddling of the culture. And I don't think it's about racist jokes or sexist jokes or jokes about gays, um, uh, which honestly, if you watch a roast, most people think are fucking hilarious. You see these roasts where they say the most inappropriate stuff, the most racist, homophobic jokes. And you have a huge audience of young people, white and black people, laughing hysterically because the shit's just funny. And there is something liberating about going there. There is nothing liberating about timidly tipping around. Oh, I can't say this because it's going to offend a marginalized group or a race or a person of a certain gender or ethnicity. It's just, it is... An impossible way to be a real person, to be a person engaged with the world. And it's no way to be. It's a terrible way to be an artist, an absolutely terrible way to be a writer or an artist, to have a hundred a list of a hundred things that you cannot explore or talk about because of this, this and this. And let's not. I mean, if you want to start with cultural appropriation and what horrible door that opens up. We're down a not only a slippery slope. We're down. We're down a fucking water slide of a, a morass of like fucking art up and fucking free speech up and fucking what we can and cannot say. The the policing of art right now is at a height that I've never seen in my lifetime, and it's a reaction against. I, I don't know what it's a reaction against, but it is. Tr- Truly dangerous. I mean, if people start thinking that Trump and ICE is all resembling Weimar Germany, I mean, what in the hell is cancel culture about in terms of like what movies you can show, comrade, what paintings we can put on walls? Um, you know, it's, you know, oh, you cultural appropriate as someone, you've got to pull that book out of, uh, out of that, that slate. I see it every day and I find it terrifying as an artist. And I find it terrifying that. Um, it, we seemingly go along with it to a degree. You know, I don't know what's next. I don't know if Huckleberry Finn is going to be banned because it uses the N-word or if Blazing Saddles is ever going to be shown on TV anymore or or let alone a John Hughes movie that has kind of a, a, a racially questionable character in it or the use of the word fag. You know, that is a, a, another big thing. I we're, We are going to erase... You you start erasing that, you're going to begin to erase a lot of other stuff, too. Well, the question is, where's the line and who gets to decide? There isn't one. What is the line? Who And who does get to decide? I guess the culture, the society somehow decides where the line is. Or do they? Are they told to? Who says? I mean, it's kind of like, and I guess in some weird way, I'm a little bit more passionate about this because it happened to me on an epic scale with American Psycho. And so I do get a little bit, I think if it does happen to you, you're a little bit more sensitive about it. I know Jay McInerney has said about White and the book that uh, I think Brett feels this way. Uh, He's actually one of us, Jay has told I think the New York Times, he's actually one of us. He's actually one of these coastal elites. He basically is a coastal elite, but he has this added thing mixed in of what happened to him in 1990 and 91. And it's caused this kind of warping of looking at everything through this other lens. It's a trauma. Maybe you were traumatized by it. 
You know what? I, I don't know if I really was or not. I mean, I felt that it was um, that the book was what it was and that it was not how other people had described it or were talking about it in those terms. And I knew it would somehow survive. Um, and it did survive. I mean, actually, a better publisher published it and got it and knew what it was rather than what the, the noise surrounding its prepublication. But um, I don't know. It's a very – I can go along with people not liking Trump. I can go along with that, and I get it. I live with it. I, get, I understand it. But when we start talking about art – and this is big in publishing right now. In young adult publishing – Self-censoring is rampant, as I'm sure you follow some of these stories of people taking their books off because five tweets come out calling them cultural appropriators or you're not Muslim enough to write about this character. I don't know. It's it's really scary. And I don't know what we're raising in terms of this next generation, this wave moving forward of people thinking this is all okay, that there is a culturally approved art that follows these rules, or if it doesn't, then it's anti-gay, anti-woman, anti-black, whether it is or not. Um, what, looking at art through this ideological lens, which is something that I talk a lot about in white, is I, I cannot even begin to get on that side of the aisle. That really drives me. And I'm not saying that you are on that I was side just going to say, because yeah. just to be clear, like when it comes to artistic expression, I'm wide open. I think more... When it comes to like changing with the times a little bit, I'll give like a personal example. Like on this program, when I would introduce a female author, like in the monologue, I would say like, now here she, and here she is the lovely and talented. And I think I was aping Dave Letterman because mm -hmm. I grew up watching him and he used to always say mm -hmm. that. So it sort of embedded itself. And I just thought it was like a, like a polite and like a, which it is, which I hope, but like I got an email, I got multiple emails where it was like, you know what? Don't call your female guest lovely. Like, don't like, and there was an argument made that I read and I was like, you know what? Okay. Like, maybe I need to listen. Like, maybe this is quietly bothering a lot of women and, uh, maybe I need to respond to that. And so do you think that I overdid it by responding? Sure. Oh yeah. Oh, I do. I do. And I think you should call if a woman is lovely, she's lovely. I mean, if you're in, if you're doing it to every woman, then what's Are you, are you only citing out certain? No, I, did, more I think I did women? it with all of them. I think I did it with all of them. Well, I don't know. I mean, that seems to me to be like a, a a gnat bite. That seems to be like not a big deal at all. Um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I've look, we start talking about equality and we also end up with the princess in a parapet still demanding equality with, you know, uh, if a woman or someone can't deal with the fact that you're calling someone lovely who i imagine you do are you just lying <laughs> are you just trying to like make them like you no i'm just trying to be kind i guess i, I don't think i think my 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 instincts were fine i just i think sometimes people receive certain things oh, do you really think that these people cared one way or the other i don't know i just do you I think, think they really cared or they right. just wanted to make a noise i think maybe i have that thing where i want people to like me more and I care about that um, a lot, which I think can be a good thing, but maybe sometimes too much. So the difference is if I have an attractive young actor on my podcast and I say to the actor, you look rather handsome today. You look quite hot, in fact. Okay, so that's fine. And we're going to be okay with that. I'm not going to get any letters, no notes coming in from anybody telling me to change my podcast. 
And yet you say that this writer here is the lovely and talented so-and-so. Who doesn't want to be called lovely? When has lovely become this overarching <laughs> patriarchal attack on a woman? I'm sorry. I grew up with women who like that. And I grew up with women who – I grew up in a very matriarchal world. The, my dad had checked out. Right. And my grandfather had checked out. So it was all women. It was my aunt, my mother, my sisters, my nieces. It was they were the my grandmothers. My it was just that was the core group. And I guess that they never ever. And and we're not talking about none of these women are wealthy anymore. Some of them are dead, not wealthy. Um, and and I never heard anything about uh, negative about men or about. Uh, the patriarchy, or certainly not any of them being a victim and in control of their own destiny with men. And I think that this strong female sense that I got growing up has made me very impatient with things like that. Like, I don't think that any of these women that I knew, the dozen or so that were uh, made all the decisions about trips and parties and holidays and stuff, I don't know. I don't think any of them would mind that, would, would care one way or the other about that. And I, I don't know. I feel the same way about some of my favorite writers from Joan Didion to Pauline Kael, who were tough, tough and did not see themselves as victims of a patriarchy. They saw themselves above it, in fact, and much stronger, whether it existed or not, as Joan Didion famously wrote in the White Album. Um, you know, I, she didn't buy the package, she writes. And so I, and I, and I grew up in a household where no one bought that package and they certainly don't buy it now. And I, I gotta tell you the eye rolls about me too. And about the weaponization of me too in my household with these women is uh, across the boards. Really? Yeah. Across the boards. Cannot believe that someone would complain about this or that an actress would get a $10 million settlement from CBS because she felt two actors said something that uh, were, were in an improv were um, abusive and harassment. Crickets. You're not going to hear any of them going right on sister. That's right. And it's just, it's when things like when movements become weaponized like that, um, well, they do. They ultimately, they always do. They, they they become as warped as I think sometimes what they're attacking, and and even with starting with the best intentions. But you know, I think it really cracked open for many many men I know when the New York Times did that profile on Ryan Adams, where they tried to meet to him somehow, and they said that oh, we would promise young female musicians work if they flirted with them. Really, M Mandy Moore said she couldn't make a record for six years because Ryan was too controlling. Whose fault is that, babe? I mean, really, when we start moving it over because someone's a douche rather than someone involved in criminal behavior and actually trying to fuck, fuck with someone, I, I don't know. We, that article really, I cannot tell you when I, when I talked about this on my podcast, how many people, men responded to that and said, this has gotten completely out of hand, you know, blacklisting an actress, sexually assaulting an actress, um, is one thing, but if you if you're saying that your boyfriend grabbed you by the wrist, I think of the Chris Hardwick thing. Your boyfriend grabbed you by the wrist and you had rough sex a couple of times three years ago, and you start bringing this up as you are the victim and Chris Hardwick should be me too. And and fortunately, Chris Hardwick was vindicated in the end. But that was that was one of those moments. And I know Todd today, who is as millennial aspirational. 
believes in these movements as you could get was muttering about um, some other thing that was in uh, the news today that was uh, a Me Too thing. Well, there were like a lot of them. There, there's like three or four now every day. And it's kind of diluted the power of the initial movement. But it was um, just another person. It was in New York Times. And he even he was like, oh, and I, this, I can't believe. Oh, it was... Um, it was, uh, oh, I'll think of it in a minute, some, some entertainment person, someone involved in the entertainment business. Well, you know, I think there's a lot of, uh, I try to make sense of like the, the rise of the movement, like Trump's election, the fact that Hillary got screwed over, at least in the eyes of many, uh, that the election was stolen from her, like women were pissed. Yeah, it's completely connected to Trump being elected, the Me Too movement. And, his, and he's a serial sexual assaulter. I mean, he really genuinely sexually assaulted many women. Mm-hmm. I believe them. Do you, that doesn't bother you? I don't know. I don't know if that's completely true. He sexually assaulted them, yeah. I think, he, I think he had sex with a child. The Jeffrey Epstein connection. I think we're going to find out about that. But now we're getting, I mean, are we getting into territory that you've heard before from uh, Todd? No, no. Oh, yeah. You don't know. I've heard all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Todd doesn't believe that Trump had sex with a child. And, tr- and Todd also doesn't believe the sexual nature of any of that matters at all. He says people's sex lives and whatever women and men do and whatever man does or whatever. I, he's just not. That's that is so far down the road of what he's concerned about. And he he doesn't like it when sex comes into. I mean, I mean, look, the Gillibrand thing. Todd went absolutely nuts when Al Franken was kicked out, and that that was the beginning of, you know, the circular firing squad that Obama warned us about after all that Biden stuff came out about his hair sniffing and shoulder touching, and that there seemed to be the media seemed to be for two or three days going toward a Me Too movement with Joe Biden. Luckily, Obama came out, made that speech, talked about we got to be careful. We can't start shooting everybody because of one little thing compared to the vast things. But that and also, I mean, Todd got super angry at the media going after Joe Biden. And that, of course, that followed days after the Mueller report dropped. So Todd was in a very silent place for those four days. But even he can't quite the 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 grabbing by the pussy thing, which, believe me, did not move the needle at all for women. Didn't move the needles for for Trump, liberals hey, or listen, Republicans. Trump, Trump won what, like forty eight percent or fifty two percent of women. Didn't? Well, he did, and he also won a fair, uh, fair. Uh, uh, he won the majority of white millennials. Look, we're not here to we're we're not here to discuss Trump any longer. <laughs> We've had enough Trump. And I really do think that the air sometimes goes out of the room after Trump is brought up. It's like people just can't. They're too excited. There's a lot to process. And you're you're a good sport for for indulging me and talking about it because I know you've been doing a ton of media. Um, Last question I'll ask you. um, Are you working on another book? Do you have plans to do a movie? Like what's on your slate creatively? Uh, I want to finally make a movie. I have a script uh, and, um, you know. As everyone says in L.A., like everyone says in L.A., I have a script I'm dealing with financiers and my producing partner, and we're hopefully going to get that and make this movie uh, or another movie, a couple scripts. Which one is going to land more? Which one is actually going to get the money? And I really want to do that. I want to. I do want to direct. I am working on a novel, uh, a novella, I guess you'd call it. Somehow White uh, got me excited about writing prose that wasn't simply for screenplays. Or pilots, and there was something about 
being able a freedom to use the language in a way that I guess I've kind of been denying myself for 10 years uh, to, um, you know, uh, to inhabit a literary world. And I think white was that for me, or if not fully, it sparked something. And so I'm working on that. And that's probably what I'll do most of the summer is work on that, that, uh, that fiction and then try to find money for the movie. And that's really, that actually is a lot. I was going to say, it's not, and also, you know, I I record, uh, produce and write a podcast every two weeks with, uh, with about 40 minutes of it written. So I do still do those long format essays, uh, every other week. And that takes up a long time. Very fun. Uh, certainly I don't have kids and, uh, I don't have a day job, so I am able to juggle this in a way that is would seem probably completely daunting for someone who has to deal with both of those things like you do. Yeah, it's uh, it definitely takes up a lot of the time. But uh, I wish you well on everything. I appreciate you making time to come over here. It's great to meet you. That's great to meet you, too. And this was um, really nice. All right, everybody. There you go. That is Brett Easton Ellis. His new book is called White. It's an essay collection available from Knopf. You can find him online at bretteastonellis.com. You can follow him on Twitter. His handle over there is at bretteastonellis. You can check out the Brett Easton Ellis podcast while you're at it. You can listen to that via Patreon. I think he's also got an uh, Instagram, at Brett Ellis. Once again, his essay collection is called White. Out there now from Knopf. Go get your copy. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music as always. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you want to respond to the program, if you want to write to me, my email address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. If you want to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod throw a few bucks in the hat this podcast has its own official app it's the other people with brad listy app it's free go get it wherever you get your apps it's free it's a great way to listen and keep up with the show new episodes of the other people podcast go live every wednesday and it's all free the show's website is otherppl.com the twitter handle is at other PPL. So next week on the program, who's coming up? Aaron Hosier, author of the memoir Don't Let Me Down, also my literary agent. Finally getting her on the show. I guess she's been on the show before with uh, Patty Schemmel. They co wrote a memoir together, but this is Aaron on her own in conversation with me about her lovely memoir so stay tuned for that coming up next week got some other good ones in the hopper but uh i'll keep those under the lid for now got out of town last week that was nice it was weird it's kind of a work trip but we went up the coast stayed near the ocean I got to see some wild birds go for long walks on the beach. I went for a hike in in the fog in the morning, like the morning uh, marine layer. 